Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You might go over to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, and chapter 11 and verse 9. He says, I will not ex execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. There are two themes that run through the Bible. Two themes that run through the Bible and never come together in one sense. In theology we call the one theme the transcendence of God. That is, God is high, He's away from us, He's apart from us, we can't touch Him, and in that sense we can't know Him. The other word is the imminence of God, that is, He is so close to us, He has become flesh, He has lived among us, Emmanuel, the name of God with us, and we can know Him, we can experience Him, we can feel Him. Now, how can you bring those two extremes together? The God who is a God far away, far removed, and the God who is so close that I can experience Him within. These two verses that we read together bring those two things together. Back there in Isaiah, it says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly spirit. You've got the two extremes there. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place, and at the same time, he says, I am with the contrite and the lowly spirit. Or there in Hosea 11 and 9, he says, I am God and not man. So that means that anything we've ever understood of God can never be within the context of a man. You can't take the best man you ever knew, multiply him to the nth degree and say, that's God. Because right there you've made an idol. God is not a man to any degree. God is totally unlike anybody or anything you know. He is I and he's away from us. There's a great gulf fixed between the creator and the creature. Yet at the same time, he says, I'm a God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. He says, the one who is so far removed from you is living right among you. Now, the transcendence, the far awayness of God and the imminence, that is the closeness of God, the only time that we can understand them coming together is in the word we call grace. That the grace of God has brought the Holy One into my heart. And I know Him and I experience Him and I feel Him. Now, we can never study the imminence and the transcendence of God together. The only way we can study them is apart. Tonight we're going to study, at least in part, the transcendence of God under the term the Holy One. He's removed from us. And if tonight all I lay on you is how far away God is, if you go away from this place feeling afraid of God, that's great. 
I'm setting out to do that. I want to really see what the Scripture says about how different God is from us, how far away He is, how untouchable He is. So you can never study the closeness of God in the same mind as you study the farawayness of God, but you can never think of them separately. Because if you only went away tonight realizing how far away God was, I would have failed in one sense. Because that far away God has come to us in Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, I know that God. And the heathen may tremble before the far awayness of God, but we who are Christians say, My Holy One, I know Him. And though I may tremble before Him, which is something this 20th century needs to learn how to do, we're too buddy with God. We've reduced God, He's on welfare. It's just a God that has no attributes left. We've just reduced Him to a nothing. We need to learn the farawayness of God, that He's God. But in the same breath, we need to realize we do know Him through Jesus Christ. So though we study the holiness and the nearness of God in two separate sections, we cannot think of them apart. Okay? So, that's what we're going to do. Now, I had a long time before I understood what the term holy really meant. I suppose to begin with, I thought it was little ladies who didn't do anything apart from wear black stockings, black skirts, they didn't wear earrings or makeup and they never drank or did anything like that. They were holy people. In fact, in Ireland where I came from for a period of time, they had what they called the holiness movement. And I don't think anybody in this room qualifies for the holiness movement. Uh, you're all far too worldly. The holiness movement just stripped you of anything that remotely resembled uh, pride. And if you wore anything that showed any kind of pride in yourself, you were worldly. I suppose the nearest we get to it today is our friends in Pennsylvania, the Amish folk or the Mennonite, especially the black bumper Mennonites, who buy a car and paint the bumpers black in case anything should shine on their car. That's worldly. And um, that was, to me, holiness. It was drab. It was black. It was people who had separated them from this century, let alone this world. Then I, I moved from there, uh, but I moved in the wrong direction because I thought that anybody or anything holy was terribly spiritual. That is, a holy man was a terribly spiritual man. And it was quite a shock to me to find out that the word holy has nothing to do with your character. Because the Bible speaks of a holy place, and a holy dish, and holy water, and a holy altar. Uh, now a dish can't be spiritual. You follow me? So holiness has nothing to do with character. Holiness is to do with status. Okay? Now that was a very important thing in my understanding of this, and I believe that it should be a very important thing to you. But holy is not talking about the moral character of a person or a thing. That comes in, but it comes in secondarily. The first meaning of the word holy is to do with status, not character. And what is the status? The word holy means to mark off 
from the secular. It means to divide, so that there is a gulf fixed between whatever is holy and whatever isn't. It means to separate. Holy means to regard the separated, divided thing with an, uh, as an object of awe. Okay? In one sense, this... No, I won't, you might get the wrong idea. This watch... I was going to say the Bible, but you might suddenly think spiritual again. Look, this watch, in a sense, is holy. In a sense, it is holy to me. That is, it's not yours, it's mine. It has been marked off. It has been separated. It's not anybody's watch, it's mine. It is separated from everybody else. It is separated from anyone else's possession. It is my exclusive possession. It's my watch. Therefore, in its prime meaning, the word holy could be applied to that. It is a separated watch. It is separated from you to me. It is divided from all of you, divided to just me, me alone. It's mine. It is separated. There is a gulf fixed between that watch and all the other watches in the auditorium. You follow what I mean? Now... I know that most people don't think in those terms, so let's start out by dropping every idea you've ever had of the word holy. Because just to think of it as meaning separated, different, other, could be quite a revolution for some of us. And God said He is the Holy One. He's the separated one. He's the different one. He is so different, he's unlike anything or anybody else you know. Right? That's the prime elementary meaning. So what do I think of when I think of God? God says, I'm the Holy One. That means God can be compared to nothing and no one. Let that sink in. I cannot say God is like. I can't. God's holy. He is separated from anything or anybody you know or will ever know. Because anybody you know was created by God. I'm talking about the one who created all that is. He's different to all of that. And so God cannot be compared to anyone. God is separated by an impassable gulf from everything that is creature. He's not like any creature that you can know. God is alone. Alone. So in one sense I could say he's just himself. I can't say he's like this or like that or like this. He's himself. And himself is like nothing else that ever was, ever is or ever will be. He's just himself. Greatly removed from creature. There is no equal to God. God is God. And you may understand when I say that why I have such a problem so many times with many of the songs that come out of Pentecostalism and fundamentalism because they treat God as if he's the lodger upstairs. They treat him as the man next door. He's someone that is just a rather unusual human. 
that will pat you on the head on judgment day and understand all by and by. And I have such an enormous problem with that to the point of almost having a chip on my shoulder because I understand to begin with He's the Holy One. I can never know God intimately, personally, until first of all I've known that I cannot ultimately know Him. Does that make sense? There's an infinite gulf fixed between God and man. God is the creator, I am what he made. And in one sense the two can never come together. Or as we read there in Hosea 11:9, he said, I am God and not a man. The two cannot come together. You will find in the Psalms a great deal that is written over against this. It may not actually mention the word holy, but it's written with that in mind. Uh, psalm 99 is a psalm you may study and meditate on at length. But let me read. Now, this is over against what we've said just now, that there's a great gulf. And I come against God, the one who made me, and I realize he's holy. And it says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Do you remember where the cherubim were? Those of you that came to our course in Exodus would rapidly remember that it was inside what was called the Holy of Holies. And there on the veil that separated man from the Holy of Holies there were designed cherubim and inside the Holy of Holies was a box covered in gold and out of the gold were beaten two cherubim. It was called the... Ark of the Covenant and the piece of gold with the cherubim was called the mercy seat and it was called the throne of the God of Israel and the place where the throne was describing the God who was there was holy of holies and it says here he is enthroned above the cherubim that is the glory of God upon the top of that mercy seat in the holy of holies it said let the earth shake You've come into the presence of your Creator. You haven't come to visit with a very important man. You haven't come to visit with man to the nth degree. You have come to your Creator who is unlike anyone you've ever known. In fact, he never began. And you began. Feel your mortality. Feel how beginning you are. Tremble before him, says the psalm. He's exalted above all the peoples. It says, Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he. It goes on in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Right down in verse 9 it repeats it. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. You'll find reference in Psalm 93. Similarly, in verse 1, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Verse 2, Thy throne is established from old, thou art from everlasting. It says, Everything about God inspires within me the sense of awe, majesty, wonder, I can't treat God casually 
I can't be buddy-buddy with God. Let the whole earth worship before him. Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. That is, there is nothing to be likened to him. When you have thought to the end of the supernatural, when you think you have grasped the possibility of the supernatural, that is all gods, everything that this earth thinks of when they think of gods, then this God that we're talking about is great above all gods. You may remember back in Exodus, especially if you were with us in that course, that there was a reference to this awesomeness of God in what on first reading appears to be very strange in Exodus in chapter 19 do you remember what happened there verse 12 Moses were told to command the people with something very strange he said let the people be ready for the third day verse 12 you shall set bounds for the people all around saying beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death no hand shall touch him shall he be stoned then in verse 21 says the Lord spoke to Moses go down warn the people this was the second time first of all Moses had told them you mustn't come anywhere near the mountain you mustn't touch it gone up to God God said my first instruction Moses is go back down again and tell the people the same thing he says uh, warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish and verse 24 do not let the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break forth upon them what is all that about? Why was it on that Mount of Sinai? There was great clouds and lightning and thunder. Why was it that God appeared to them as an awesome fire? And why was it they put a boundary around the bottom of Mount Sinai so that no one could even come near it? What's God trying to tell the people? He is trying to say in language that those people could understand. What I'm trying to say in language, hopefully you understand, there is a gulf fixed between God and man it's a gulf that is very real and you don't come and gaze at God like he's a carnival spectator uh, you, you, you understand God is God and God is frightful there is something terrifying to the human when he comes up against God does that shock you? there is a certain terror about God I know that is not very popular in America at this particular time we, we, we like to reduce God to a sort of Gerald Ford of a president he's a nice guy uh, president may be but he's a nice guy and God may be God but he's not frightening We've, we, we, we've separated him from his right to judge and put anybody in hell we've successfully got rid of that in 50 years and we're left with a very nice guy uh, no the Bible presents to me a God who is frightening he's a terrifying God when beginning creature meets unbeginning uncaused creator then there is a great awe and fear 
that comes upon me. The Bible says when we talk about holy, we are talking about God Himself. That is, it's who He is. And in the Bible, you'll find that the Bible speaks of Him, that's His name. His holy name. Many times in the Bible it refers to Him very simply as the Holy One. That's it. Do you need any more? That's the end of it in, in one sense. He's not a man. And I stand there speechless. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to describe him. And that, in a sense, is the beginning of true worship. That in absolute awe, wonder, mouth hanging open, I stand at the end of reason and intellect and say, My God, my God. Did you see what it means, Holy One? You read through the Bible and you'll never find that it says mighty name. Now God is mighty, he's almighty, but you'll never find a reference to the mighty name of God. Read through the Bible, you'll never find a name called wise name. Now God is all wise, but you will never find him referred to as the wise name. You can read through the Bible... God is great, but you'll never find him referred to as the great name. But over and over again, you will find him referred to as the holy name. He is the one utterly removed from man. Where in the Bible will you find it said, Eternal, eternal, eternal is the Lord of hosts. God is eternal. God never began, he never ends. But you'll never find it referred to eternal, eternal, eternal. Where in the Bible will you find it say, Power, power, power is the Lord of hosts. God is all power. But never is he referred to like that. But more than once in the Bible it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When we speak of holiness, we are speaking of who God is. And God, who He is, may also be almighty, be wise, be great, be eternal. But when I speak of the very essence of who God is, holy, holy, holy. Right? Interestingly, in the Bible, in its anthropomorphisms, do you remember that word? When you speak of God as if He's a man... In his anthropomorphisms, you'll, you'll remember, God is spoken of as having arms. And whenever it speaks of the arm of God, it speaks of the power of God. And so, whenever the Bible speaks of God's power, we speak of his arm, anthropomorphically. And whenever we speak of his all-knowledge, that is, God knows everything... It talks about his eyes. And of course it talks about that very strangely. It says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all the earth. Um, but you get the message, I think. If a pair of eyes ran all through this, I, I think we'd understand what's happening. God knows everything that everybody's doing all the time. and all. The eyes of God are his all knowledge. And so his power is his arm, his omniscience, or his all-knowledge is his eye. When we speak of how long he's lived, 
we say eternity, his duration. But do you know what they call his holiness? Calls the beauty of the Lord. And you take a concordance and look up the word beauty, and you'll find that in more than one place it speaks of the beauty of holiness. So the beauty of God is the holiness of God. That I can only really appreciate God, respond to God, know who He is, when I know His holiness. You may admire a person's power, but I doubt you'll go away saying they're beautiful. You might admire a person's knowledge, but I doubt you'll say they're beautiful. You'll look at an old man who's lived a long time and knows a lot, but I doubt you'll say they're beautiful. And so you may admire God's almightiness, and you may be struck dumb before his all-knowledge, and you may be awestruck before him who never began and will never end. But you've never known what the beauty of God is, the rightness. You know, what's beauty? Um, really. You, you look at someone and, and they don't mean anything to you, but to someone else they say that person is beautiful. Uh, what is beauty? Beauty is that sense in you which says that's right. That fits all that is. It's like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that just fits and makes everything come together. Right? Do, do, do you follow what I mean? Or maybe you've never said to anybody they're beautiful. Um, if, if you feel someone or something is beautiful, it means it, it fits. It's right. It makes the whole universe just fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And once I've seen the holiness of God, I'll say that's beautiful. That's right. I, it, it may upset me. In fact, I, I have to smile at some of our friends who say you come to Jesus and you'll have peace. Good grief, when I came to God, he blew me apart. Um, I, I don't find anything peaceful in coming to God, quite honestly. Peace comes afterward. The first thing I find about God is I'm all bent out of shape. Because I come to the one who is beautiful. Because he is God. I as a creature have a certain relationship to him. And I find that right now that relationship is wrong. I find he's right. He's beautiful. He fits. Everything's right. That means I'm wrong. Right? And that's very devastating. Very devastating. The Bible always states that God swears by his holiness. In Psalm 89 and verse 35, he made a promise to David. And David sings of that promise in Psalm 89. God promised him that there would be one who would sit upon the throne forever and ever. He was speaking of Jesus. And he swore in verse 35, God said, I swear by my holiness. Now, if you go to court and you swear, I believe you say in America pretty much the same as we say in England... Raise your right hand, swear, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. That is, I swear, and I swear by the highest one that I know, God. Now when God swears, who does he swear by? 
He swears by himself, there being no greater. And in swearing by himself, he says, I swear by my holiness. Holiness is the very essence of who God is. You'll find the same thing in Amos chapter 4 and verse 2. Now, when men met with God, I mean really met with God, not just knowing he was there, but really meeting with him, it was a devastating experience. There is no other word that can be put to it. I, I am very concerned with people these days who so glibly say that they were slain in the spirit. Now, bless your heart if that happened to you. I, that's, it happened to you. But the people in the Bible who were, quote, slain in the spirit, not that that word ever occurs in the Bible, but those who use that term to describe what happened to them, it was a devastating experience. But those who use that term to describe what happened to them, it was a devastating experience. You never wanted it back again, yet you did. When you meet with God like we're trying to explain tonight, it has the two elements. On the one hand, you are so afraid that you as a mortal creature have met with unbeginning, uncaused God, that you feel you're falling apart, you feel there's no place left for you in the universe, and yet at the same time you want to go back to him because you know grace is there too and he's calling you back uh, do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah tries to explain you remember in the first five chapters of Isaiah all he does is shout woe, woe, woe to everybody within shouting distance first five chapters he takes every sinner that ever was and tells woe, woe, woe and in chapter 6 it says I saw the Lord and it says in verse 3, one called to another. The angels around the throne of God called to each other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Foundation of the thresholds trembled the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. When he saw the Holy One, he no longer addressed the world with woe. He said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. He suddenly realized how utterly wrong he was when he, stated, when he stood before the Holy One. Now, the word ruined there is an interesting word. Uh, I guess the best word that we could really translate the Hebrew there is I am disintegrating I am falling apart I, I realize that I'm so mortal I'm so beginning and I stand before him who never began God and there's nothing left for me to do than just fall apart and say God you're God um that interests me especially when it fits into everything else in the Bible like in Daniel and chapter 10 Daniel chapter 10 and in verse 7 
Now I, Daniel, saw the vision. And in verse 8, So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face. Uh, why do these men go into such detail to describe this falling apart, this devastation, this disintegration, right down to the fact my color drained, he felt himself going white, strength leaving him, and finally swooning at the sound of the words of God. You remember when Moses stood in the presence of the burning bush, when God revealed himself to Moses. All he could do was tremble, fall on his face, bow his head to the ground, and there be, just be in the presence of God. Do you remember that prophet Habakkuk? In Habakkuk, in chapter 3, Remember the story of Habakkuk? It's a, just a little tiny book in the Bible. But in the first few verses of the book, Habakkuk has a problem with God. He said, there is so much evil going on around right now. Everybody's wicked. There's injustice. Aren't you going to do something about it, God? God said, do something, I've already got my plans laid. He said, in fact, I'm going to pick up what today would be equivalent to the communists. He said, I, I, I've picked up the communists and they're going to come and wipe you all out. That'll teach you. And, and Habakkuk said, God, you can't do a thing like that. Let me remind you who you are. You can't use communists, the Babylonians in this case. And God said, I think you'd better understand who I am. He says, you think I'm just a man. And he says, you don't understand that I hold the whole world in my hand and I can use who I want and choose to do what I will and you don't talk to me like that. Habakkuk, you'd better understand who I am. And in his understanding of God, in chapter 3 and verse 16, Habakkuk gives this testimony when he saw who God really was. He said, I heard my inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble he said I'm, I'm trembling before God do you remember in the book of Revelation chapter 1 the apostle John saw the Lord Jesus Christ as he now is in all his glory and it says in verse 17 when I saw him I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he was unable to move until the Lord Jesus laid his hand upon him and said, Stand on your feet. It was an awe. It was a sense of nothingness at the presence of God who was the beginning of all things. Whenever any man in the Bible faced God, they saw two things. Number one was their mortality, and number two was their wretchedness, their sin. We're going to talk a lot more about that in a moment. But just for the moment, why is that such a shock? 
we sit here and nod wisely of course yes why not but you see the point is most people think they made themselves very few people consciously think that they arose out of nothingness at the word of God very few people even think in terms that God is now in the process of giving to them life we think rather in terms that I can breathe forever even the atheist believes he has a right over the breath with which he curses God but the breath I am now breathing the breath you are now breathing that enables you to hear what I'm saying is given by the creator and preserver of all and when I meet God just plain God I realize the great distance he made me I don't breathe a breath there's not life in my flesh except he gave it I am mortal I began and if he so willed I could dissolve into nothingness I'm nothing I strut around this world and I think I'm everything and when I see God for who he is I am reduced to nothing and that is a terrifying experience and I can see by your faces you're having a little bit of a job to appreciate that and I might just say that most Americans do because most Americans feel they fill the universe most other countries of the world have not risen to such high status and therefore find it easier to be afraid of God but most Americans find it very hard to be afraid of God and I, I, I hope you take that as I say it but those of you that study hymnology have you ever studied hymns? Uh, it, you know if you've got that bent in mind it's good um, you notice the great hymns um, that speak of the immortal only wise God those great hymns of the church some of those that are in your Episcopal Presbyterian Lutheran hymn book and since you became a charismatic you felt too big to go back to that uh, why don't you go back and study those hymns uh, they're the most beautiful hymns the world has ever heard um, those who have become so charismatic they don't read the creeds anymore uh, why don't you go back and study the creeds there was nothing wrong with the creed we just didn't have the power to make it work it's like having all the road maps you didn't have a car to use the maps now you've got the gasoline and the car don't throw the maps out the creeds were beautiful great creeds of the church now go back and read them and you'll find a sense of awe and wonder you'll almost feel like cringing before the God that those hymns and those creeds talk about do you know where all those creeds were written and do you know where all those hymns were written Europe they weren't written in America Shall I tell you what was written in America I've got a mansion just over the hilltop <laughs> oh terrific terrific or reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by Ugh. do you see what I'm saying America has brought all its business sense its big head its swaggering walk right into the church and says God here we come and to hear of a God who is so great as to mean 
greater than great. It's hard for me to think of that. My head won't take that in. And when these men of the Bible met with God, they just disintegrated. They fell apart. They said, I'm finished. I suddenly realized there's no place for me in the universe. God fills it. I don't even have life unless God gives it. I can't even breathe unless God gives me the breath. I don't have a brain unless God gives me the brain cells. God is God. And I fall apart before him. Now, why, having established that that's what happens, that the very word holy means the apartness of God, the separateness, having established that it speaks that he is the majesty that rules on high, and that all creatures worship before him, and having established that when men do meet him, they fall to pieces, why? What is this holiness? This sense of otherness? What is it? You can talk around it and about it, but what is it? God, in his holiness, is self-existent. He is the only independent one. That is, God depends on no one outside of himself. Because he is life in himself. Now think slowly with me now. You have life. God is life. We're back to that illustration I gave the other week. I may have a glass of water, I may own the Atlantic Ocean and have a lot of water, but it's a very different thing to say I am water. God doesn't have life to the nth degree, he doesn't, he is it. So you may have life, God is life. So if you have life, you got it from God, right? And if you got it from God, you are dependent upon God in having it, right? But if God is life, he's dependent on nobody. He is it. So we speak of God as unbeginning. You began. God gave you life. And when he gave you life, you began to live. God is life, so no one ever gave it to him, if he is it. So God is unbeginning. Right? Do you follow? You're not here by accident. There is a cause to you. And when we take that cause back to its ultimate beginning, God is that cause. I can't even say of myself, I am. Not really. I say I am, but if I'm going to state that as an absolute fact, I cannot say I am. I have to say I am because he is. If God isn't, I'm not. Right? 
An atheist is a person who's trying to talk himself out of his own existence. Because if God isn't, nor is he. You're a sunbeam. God is the sun. You're just an echo. God is the original voice. If the original voice isn't there, the echo isn't. You getting it? So God is the great cause of you. Who caused God? Nobody. He's life in himself. He's the uncaused. He's the unbeginning. He is the fountain of life. The book of Revelation in chapter 4. They're worshipping in verse 11 and says, Worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things. How? Because of thy will they existed and were created. Quite frankly, that's very threatening if I really think about it. I am here merely because God said, I will it. That's it. And if God were to unwill it, I'm not. That doesn't give too much to me, does it? See, he's life in himself unbeginning, uncaused, the fountain of life in himself. I am begun, I am caused, and I am totally, helplessly dependent. So God is the only independent one, uncaused one, fountain of life in himself. Or as Jesus said in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, in verse 26, it says, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. So, the Father has life in himself. You don't. No animal has life in itself. No angel has life in itself. Only God. So that everything that is depends on him for life and existence in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 17 verse 25 it says since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things so he is the eternal fountain that never runs out who gives life and breath to all things think about this everything everything is made by someone who of necessity is made by no one but who always was think about that everything was made by someone well who made that someone well if that someone was made the one who made him who made him? And you could go on and on and on until you come back to where I just said that everything is made by someone who of necessity was made by no one. The one who began everything never began. The one who caused everything was never caused. He just is. 
I can't think about that. I can tell you about it, but I can't think it. And maybe that's part of why men fell to pieces. You can imagine your mind right now, if you seek to think that, your mind falls to pieces. If you meet that person, you might just fall to pieces. You see what I mean? Now, I'll carry it one step further. If everything that is came out from him who never began, right? We agree with that? Then if everything that is came from him, then everything is for him. He made it. It is. Can't argue with that. If the very way that the atoms of your body hold together, if the way the atoms of this desk hold together are from him, then this desk is his and I am his and you are his. I don't have a choice about that. He made me. And why did he do it? Well, it says there in Revelation in chapter 4, we just read it, he said, because he wanted to. So we exist for his pleasure. We are here, made from him, for him, for his pleasure. And pleasure takes me to the next step, which says we are back to him. If I have pleasure in something, it gives to me, right? Even if you have pleasure in a vase of roses, the roses give you something. So all creation came from him, all creation is for him, all creation gives him pleasure, all creation is made and designed to return to him in what we call worship or praise. Okay? It came from him, is for him, returns to him in worship. Now that's not an option. If we had begun with creation and said, now you ought to worship God, that's one thing. But we didn't start there. We started with saying, it wouldn't be there but for him. He is its life. Therefore, creation doesn't have an option. Worship and praise is the natural of creation. If it is normal, it will return to him in praise and in worship. Therefore, all creation at its own level is to worship God. We've often said every time a worm turns in the earth, it's doing what it was meant to do. If you have any doubts about that, you try creating a worm, make it turn, and you'll understand a little tiny bit that if God made the worm, and God gave it worm life, and every time it turns like a worm turns, that is glorifying the wisdom and the power of God, for I couldn't do that, nor could anybody. God did it. Therefore, every time a worm turns, it glorifies God at a certain level. Every time a bird whistles and sings, it glorifies God, for birds were made to do that. You try and create a bird, let alone make it sing, and you'll find what I... 
it came from him, it is for him, it's for his pleasure, and every time it does what it was supposed to do, it returns to him in a certain kind of praise. So that in the book of Revelation, if you read then chapters 4 and 5, it says, All things said, Alleluia, things on earth and under the earth, and all I know of under the earth are worms, and it says, And those things in the sea. So every time a fish's fin waves in the sea, you try and make a fish do that. That came from God. That is for God. It's for his pleasure. It returns to him. Man, of course, as we shall see in a moment, was made as no other creature on earth was made. And therefore was called upon to worship as no other creature on earth was made to worship. We were made to worship the Holy One. That is, we were made to worship the One who is life in Himself. But we of all creation are the only ones who can do that intelligently. We're the only ones who know that we got life from Him. Have you ever pointed your finger at your dog? Your dog licks your finger. Hmm. You, you point to the dog's food. You ever done that? You point to the dog's food. Any sensible, rational dog would know you're pointing at food. It comes and smells your finger. Okay? Some of you are looking at me crazy. You must have the most unusual dogs that have ever been born. Dogs, dogs understand facts. They do not understand meaning. Right? So I point my finger. My finger is a fact. My finger happens to be giving meaning. Look, dog! But dogs don't understand meaning. That belongs only to us. They can only appreciate facts. And my finger is a fact, and so they smell it and lick it. Completely missing the meaning of my pointed finger. Right? Go and study a dog. <laughs> Some illustrations get involved. <laughs> Look, all other creation is at that level. I'm at a higher level. And a dog may operate with God's life, and that's it. But I understand, or I have capability of understanding the Holy One. And I understand I got my life from Him. I understand I am for Him, I'm for His pleasure. I understand, therefore, the highest act of life that I may perform is to return that life to Him as an act of worship. It's the first thing I understand about the Holy One. Self-existent, life in Himself, and I utterly depend upon that life. 